All right, well, good morning. My name is Eddie Franz. Um, I'm honored and proud to be here at Brentwood Bible Church, uh, filling in for Pastor Ben. Um, since the last time I've been here, a lot of things have changed. Uh, global pandemic, snowpocalypse. But I will promise you today in this sermon, I will not mention the word snow after right then, or water, or electricity, or the lack thereof. Today, I think what we need to talk about is Jesus. Let's talk about the solution. Let's talk about the hope. Let's talk about the Savior of the world today. And I don't know a better way to do that than to continue on in the lesson that Ben's been giving uh, through the book of Mark. So where I'm at today, or where we're at today in the book of Mark, is going to be in the ninth chapter, verses 30 through 50. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. If you're at home, you can open those up as well, because we're going to be there for most of the day. Um, this series that, uh, that uh, going through the book of Mark, we find ourselves in a very interesting section in, that, in this series. Ver, uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all dealing with uh, Jesus proclaiming or foretelling of his death, burial, and resurrection. He does it three separate times, and we're going to go over the, one of those today. It'll be the second one. Um, last time Ben spoke, he spoke about the first one. The first time Jesus proclaimed to his disciples that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, and that he was going to rise again. And then directly after that, he taught them what it was going to mean to be a true follower of his, what it was going to be for them to be disciples. And this lesson is a little different, but still the same. Jesus is going to foretell his death, burial, and resurrection for a second time. And again, he's pulling his disciples off to the side to do it. And again, he's going to give us a little bit more information on what it's like to be a true follower of Christ. Now, when I was studying for this and I read the, the first one, the second one, and the third one to get the context of, of really what Jesus is trying to impress upon his disciples and in turn us. And as I was reading them, I had this memory that kept just shooting to the front of my mind over and over and over. And it was back in 2013. I had just gotten married to an amazing woman named Teresa, and she blessed me with two amazing kids. Some people refer to them as stepkids. I do not. They are mine. I love them like they're my own. So I was blessed with those two kids. And in 2013, my son was eight and my daughter was five. And I mean five, like the adorable five. Right? She's like this big, adorable, sweet, amazing. And I remember that day we went camping that weekend in 2013, the whole family. And it was a great trip. I had a great time, spent a lot of time with the family. But after it was over, I was starting to pack up the truck and getting ready to leave. And my adorable little daughter came up to me, and she was holding this little picture Bible that me and her mom had gotten her. And there was a few words, but mainly pictures of the story of Jesus in this Bible. And she was carrying it with her, and she asked, could I go? She asked if she could go down by the lake. Like I said, I'd only been a parent like a year. I'm like, I don't know. That sounds dangerous. And I said, okay, but you got to stay where I can see you. And she's like, okay. So she bounds off down towards the lake. I'm continually packing things up, putting them in the truck. And I'm keeping my eye on her because I, I, this is the only thing I know how to do. I'm, I'm watching her like a hawk because I don't want to mess up. 
I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm packing up the truck, and I see that she walks over to the boat dock and sits down on the boat dock and dangles her little legs over the edge. It was cute. It was awesome. So I keep looking at her, but keep loading up the truck and packing up the tents and the sleeping bags and the food and all the stuff that we brought. Then one of the boys from a neighboring campsite, the same size, walks over onto the boat dock and just sits down with her with his little legs dangling over the edge. It was such a cute picture that I stopped and I took a photo of it with my phone. I said, that has got to be a good moment. So I keep loading up the truck and I'm almost done. I got about 15 minutes left and they're talking the entire time. They didn't move. They were sitting over there laughing and giggling and having a great time. And I remember as I got done, I yelled at Kara, come on, we need to go. So she jumps up and sprints to me, big smile on her face. And she came over and I said, did you meet a new friend? She's like, yeah, he's awesome. They live, they're, they're camping right next to us and they're going to stay another day. I was like, okay. I was like, what y'all talk about? You were over there for like 15 minutes. She was like, well, I was sitting there looking at my Bible, and he came over and asked me what I was reading. And I told him I was reading my Bible. He said he had never read the Bible. And could he look at it with her? And she said, absolutely. She says, it's amazing. It's about this guy named Jesus who does a lot of amazing things and is here to save all of us. And so then they spent 20 minutes flipping through the pictures. I would have given anything to hear the stories. And my daughter was telling this young man, sitting with their feet dangling over the edge of the dock, talking about Jesus in probably the purest form that has ever been spoken. And I was so proud. There are moments in parents' lives where you just stop and you can't be more proud of your child in that moment. That was one. But there was another feeling inside of me that wasn't pride. I was a little convicted. Because in that moment, my five-year-old daughter was so full of childlike faith, was so bold and fearless, yet so full of joy and hope. And she did not care. She gave zero cares about what anyone thought about her saying the name of Jesus to a perfect stranger. And in that moment, I wanted to be more like her. I looked at her as the example that I should be following. Now, mind you, I had preached hundreds of sermons at this point, been teaching Bible studies for years, knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. And in that moment, I wanted to be more like her. And that's the memory that just kept flooding into my mind as I'm reading these verses because it dawned on me, this is what Jesus wants us to be like as well. And it is in this telling of his life, death, and uh, life, uh, death, burial, and resurrection that he impresses upon his disciples that lesson. So I want to look at that today. We're going to be starting in chapter 9, verse 30 in the book of Mark. Verse 30 says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. So now they're in the northern part of Israel. And they're marching all the way down to Jerusalem. So when he first declares, when Peter declares that he's the Christ, he then backs it up with this foretelling of his death, burial, and resurrection. And that ignites the path from northern Israel all the way down to Jerusalem and the cross. So everything that he's saying, he's feeling 
the weight of the cross. Everything he's doing, he's preparing for that moment. And he's walking his way down from the northern parts of Galilee all the way through to Jerusalem where he knows he will be crucified and mocked and killed. So when he's talking to them, it is of the utmost importance everything that he is teaching and saying. So they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Now, the disciples very often did not understand what Jesus meant. But I can tell you where the fear came from. The first time Jesus talked about his death, burial, and resurrection, Peter rebuked Jesus and said, Never will you die. I will give my life for you. Let's go to war right now. Then Jesus rebuked Peter for rebuking Jesus, and they all kind of backed up a little bit. And then in this telling, you can imagine the disciples were like, nah, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to ask a question about this one. We're just going to let that slide. But they didn't understand it, and they were a little fearful. And here's Jesus trying to prepare them for the inevitable day where they will be the ones that are given the keys to the kingdom, and he needs them to be ready. Why didn't they understand? You know, I thought about this for a long time. And the thing that, I, that, that, that allows me to understand why they didn't understand is that they were looking at Jesus through the lens of the world. Now think about it. Here was the promised savior of the Israelites. They've been waiting thousands of years for this moment. And these disciples realized it had come. And in that realization, they, they thought, hey, he could overthrow Rome and Israel can be free. He could take Israel, teach us, lead us, guide us to where Israel is now the strongest nation in the world again. He can restore our rightful place in this world. That's what they thought. So when Jesus says, I'm going to have to die, they're like, well, no, 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 no. If you die, then we lose all of it. No, you can't die. No, I don't, I don't believe that. We're not going to let that happen. Because they were looking at Jesus, at the miracles he was doing, at the lessons he was teaching, at who he was declaring himself to be through the, uh, the lens of the world. They wanted him to be a worldly king. Somebody that could restore their rightful place in this world. And they missed it. Later they got it. Believe me, later they understood and they gave their lives for that truth later. But they missed it in this moment. What they didn't realize was Jesus was going to do something far greater than restore their rightful place on this earth. He was going to sever the power that sin holds in all of our lives. Reconcile us with God by removing the punishment of sin, by taking it upon himself, and then giving us that relationship back for eternity. I wish they would have got it then. But I think we can all relate sometimes where we don't really understand the gravity of what's happening in our lives because we may be looking at things through the lens of the world. And if we can learn anything from the disciples in this moment of their lack, let's learn that we too can see things of God through the lens of the world. And we can ask ourselves, why? 
Why did I have to go through this? Why am I suffering? Why am I in pain? Why is this going on? Where is, is, is my peace? Where is my joy? Where is my love? And what we're doing is we're looking at it through the lens of the world, and we want it to be heaven on earth right now. When what God is doing in your life and around your life is so much greater than that. Let's learn from them in this moment. All right, let's continue on in verse 33. They came to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a little bit lower than they were, so they're moving south. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Again, let's not forget, Jesus is marching towards the cross, marching towards the pain, the humiliation, the anguish that is about to take place to him. And these guys are arguing about who's the greatest disciple. If I was Jesus, I would have lost it at this point. I would have lost it. I would have like rebuked them, chastised them, maybe went and found 12 more, something. Because this would have floored me. But luckily, I'm not Jesus. He's better than that. And in unbelievable fashion, he sits them down and explains to them a very valuable lesson. And this is where we pick up what Jesus is trying to tell them about what being a follower of Christ really means. Now, I also want to throw this in here because this kind of convicted me when I was reading it. They were talking out of earshot of Jesus on this road. They were talking amongst themselves, arguing about who was greatest. They wouldn't tell Jesus what they were arguing about because the minute he mentioned it, they knew they were wrong. How does that apply to me in my life today? If I, like, I know Jesus is real. I know he's a part of me. I know that he is everywhere that I go. He hears everything that I say and do and think. I know this to be true. And yet there are times where I will sin thinking it's hidden. And if Jesus was standing physically, visibly, right now, standing next to me, in that same moment, when I go to grab whatever it is, the sin that I want to grab... I would stop and I'm like no he'd see me and I'd be disrespecting all that he's done for me would you be the same if Jesus was physically with you visibly every day everywhere you went would your life be different this is where I kind of was like ah it would in my case probably be vastly different And if the disciples can talk amongst themselves about who is the greatest, full of their own pride, knowing that Jesus would know what they were talking about, I can do the same. I can get angry in my mind and no one can hear it. I could think negative, lustful, angry, mean thoughts in my mind and no one will ever know. But Jesus is in my mind. He's in my heart. He hears them. But if I were to make him more real in my life right now, like if I would physically try to mentally picture him in my life, standing next to me, conversing with me about my thoughts, 
Would I do it different? And I think I would. And so here's my challenge to you, everyone in here, everyone listening at home. Here's my challenge. Let's make Jesus more real to us, like physically real to us in these situations and see what happens. The conviction will be there. You'll also have to acknowledge that he died for you because he loves you and cares for you. And he only wants the best for us. Again, let the disciples' mistake spur us into doing better. All right, so this is where Jesus sets them down, verse 35. Sitting them down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, this shocked me because they're arguing about greatness, right? Who's going to be the greatest? Now, in my mind, Jesus would be like, you shouldn't ever argue about who's the greatest. You shouldn't try to be the greatest. But he doesn't say that. He actually does not say that. What he says is, if you want to be great, you got to be willing to be last and a servant of all. I was like, oh, okay. So God doesn't have a problem with us being great or desiring to be great. That, that was like rewarding to me. I was like, okay, so I, there's hope that I can try to still be great. The problem is we are using the lens of the world to define the term greatness. More successful in business, bigger house, more money, more cars, nicer clothes, better uh, upstanding uh, citizen in, in, in public's view and eye point, power, greed, money. Like when we get those things, we start to feel like we're doing great, that we're being great. And that's what the disciples were truly wanting. They wanted to be great in the eyes of the world. They were trying to climb the ladder to get to the top, and they were arguing over who's standing on the, the, the top rung. And Jesus is like, that's an okay desire to want to be great. But I'm going to give you a hint. Being great in the kingdom of God means there is no ladder. It means that you are down on the floor with everyone else there to serve, sacrifice for them and the kingdom of God. And he said, if you'll do that, you'll be great. You'll be great. I love the fact that he didn't say you can't desire to be great. He's switching the focus to be great in the eyes of God versus great in the eyes of man. I just thought about that for a real quick second, and I'm like, I bet 2013, that little girl sitting on that dock talking to, about Jesus, full of faith, hope, and joy, I bet you that he declared she was great that day. It's probably the spirit inside of me that called out to say, be more like that. So he sits them down and says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. That's the first kind of takeaway point that we're making. And he just expounds on it a little bit more in the next verses. In 36, he took a, a little child whom he placed among them. Now remember, they're sitting around learning from the rabbi, learning from Christ. And he brings in this child. Story kind of making sense now, right? So he's bringing in this child. And he says to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, if I'm trying to, to, to put together how he's describing how to be great or a true follower of Christ, this verse is kind of like, it doesn't flow in this, in this conversation. They're arguing about being great. 
He sits them down and says, listen, if you want to be great, here's how to do it in the eyes of God versus the eyes of man. Well, in this, this section right here, it doesn't quite match. And so I wanted to see, so I went to the other Gospels. This same conversation happens in Matthew and in Luke. Now, Mark is very concise. It's 15 chapters, 15, 16 chapters of Mark. But in Matthew has a lot more detail about a lot of the conversations and teachings of Jesus. It's 28 chapters. So I went to Matthew. Listen to what Matthew says in this exact same instant, in this exact same conversation. Look at how much more detail there is in it. Matthew 18, 2. He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. You see, the last part is the same as what Mark was saying, right? Whoever welcomes one of these children welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes God. But we missed that first part where he says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that's fine. But you got to humble yourself like this child that he just brought in front of the, the, the disciples. Humble yourself like this child. Behave, become like this child. And I, I just sat there as I'm reading this and I picture him pulling Kara in front of him and me sitting dead on the ground right in front of Jesus. And he's saying, if you want to be great, Eddie, because I know you want to be great for the kingdom. I know it. If you want to be great, you got to become more like this child. Full of faith, childlike faith, where you don't have to see it to believe it. You know that it's true because you know the character of the person that said it. You have no fear of walking into a room full of strangers and declaring the name of Jesus. And you are bold enough to go anywhere and do that at any time. And you're also filled to capacity with love and joy and hope and grace and mercy. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Be like your daughter was on that day. That's what I was thinking when I'm reading this verse. And I believe that the disciples in that moment, they were starting to figure it out. Because Jesus is flipping the world upside down in their minds. Wait, to be great, I have to be at the bottom. I have to serve everyone else. But in society, my servant is the lowest person in the household. How does that, that match? Kingdom of man versus the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must destroy the lens of the world that you look through and you see reality through. You need to let the word of God be your lens. You need to let the, the Holy Spirit be your lens that you look at the world through. Because we are supposed to be on this earth, but we are not supposed to be a part of this earth. We're here but we don't want to belong here. We belong in heaven. Therefore, let us destroy the way we look at the world and define greatness. And in that, we can truly become great. Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop. 
because he was not one of us. This is another one where it's like, okay, how, how does John say this after Jesus set them all down, defined greatness in the kingdom of God? Why is his response, what about that guy casting out demons? I told that dude to stop because he wasn't one of us. And it dawned on me, this is John giving a little pushback to Jesus where he's like, okay, I get it. We as disciples, true followers of you, should become like children and humble ourselves. And anybody that receives us receives you. But surely you don't mean that other guy that was casting out demons in your name that wasn't one of us. We're not supposed to receive him in the same way, right? Because he didn't walk with you for three years. Jesus, he didn't hear all of your teachings. Jesus, he hasn't seen you perform all of your miracles. We have. You're talking about us, right? Not that guy. And listen to Jesus' response. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus pushes back and says, yes, that guy. And in that instant, he is declaring that that man that was casting out a demon in his name was like one of these child, like one of these children. Because think about it. Did he know as much as the disciples? No. Had he heard all of Jesus' teachings? Nope. Had he seen Jesus perform all of his miracles? No. Had he walked with Jesus for three years? No. And yet this man was so full of childlike faith, he was able to walk up to a person, cast a demon out of him successfully, I mind you, and gave Jesus all the credit. That man was doing exactly what my little girl was doing on the end of that dock. He was fearless. He had childlike faith. He was full of love and joy and hope. And he was serving someone else. Yes, Jesus was including him as well. The children of the kingdom of God is anybody that walks through life humbly like that that loves like that, that has faith like that, and giving Jesus all of the glory. Now, he transitions. He's talked about what it's like to be a true follower of Jesus. He gave an example of a child. He told them what true greatness means in the kingdom of God. And I think we can learn something from all of that. But this next section is very important because it drives home the importance of this lesson. In verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now they are right outside the door of the Galilean Sea, the Sea of Galilee. They could probably see it. He says, if you cause one of these faith-filled, joyful, loving, and fearless followers of mine to stumble, you might as well throw yourself into the ocean. That's how serious I am about this. That's how important it is to me. 
And I thought about this. What would have happened or what did happen when John walked over to the man that was casting out demons, told him, you need to stop doing this because you're not one of us. And this man, knowing that this is a disciple of Jesus himself, may have thought, I must be doing something wrong. Let me back up. I won't do it anymore. I'm sorry. And then he walks away dejected, crushed, faith destroyed, hope lost. And in that moment, he becomes jaded like the rest of the world, and he loses that childlike faith. What happens? How many people are going to miss out on the blessings because that man was caused to stumble? And I flipped it back on myself. What kind of a father would I have been if my daughter comes back to me full of joy from that dock? And I told her, listen, I know you think that that's the right thing to do, but you just don't know enough about the gospel. You just don't know the whole story yet to be telling people about Jesus. You could lead them astray. You need to learn more. You need to be a disciple longer. You need to, to read the Bible more and understand it fully before you go out there and tell people about Jesus. What would that have done to her? You think it would have added joy or stripped it? You think it would have created faith or removed it? So what he's saying is, listen, do not do that to my people. These are miracles that are happening in front of you. If you cause them to stumble because of that, you might as well just throw yourself into the ocean. And he doesn't stop there. He wants them to know you do not cause people to stumble or yourself to stumble by any means necessary. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two and be thrown into hell. For the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. This is about physical death versus eternal life, or eternal death versus eternal life. And he's saying the severity of causing these amazing followers of mine to stumble, including yourself, is so severe, do whatever it takes by any means necessary. Do not stop. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go straight to the sin and remove it from your life right now. If your TV is causing you to stumble and lose faith, to lose joy, to suck the hope right out of you, take it and throw it in the street. If your phone is causing you to sin and to lose track of your family and to lose track of God, kick it into the curb. Whatever it is in your life that is causing you to stumble and lose the following, the true following that Jesus is calling you to do, get rid of it now. Not tomorrow, not in an hour, but now. That's what this lesson was today. When he set them down, he was serious. And he says, I want you to be great. And I'm going to tell you a secret. If you haven't read further in the Bible, 
11 of those men became great. And I mean great. Because they removed the lens of the world and started seeing things through the eyes of Christ. And they realized if I sacrifice and serve and deny myself, I will be great. And they were. I implore us to do the same. Let us be great. Not by the world's standards, not by our own standards, but by the very words of the one that has saved us from our sins. Let us be great through his definition. Finally, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. That last one is basically what I say to my kids, stop arguing, right? But I'm, I'm going to switch it to be at peace with one another from now on. But he's saying stop arguing, but he's also talking about salt, right? The salt with the fire is kind of a weird statement. But what he's saying is the description of a true follower of Christ, he's attaching a term to it. When you have childlike faith, full of hope and love and no fear, he's calling you salty. Because back then, salt was an amazing thing. It preserved meat from decomposing. And it added and brought out the flavor of the food that it was put on. And he's saying, you can become salty, but that process is through fire. You want to be a true follower of Christ and be salty and, and keep souls from decomposing? Do you want to be salty and allow the gospel to have its flavor enhanced every time you say it? Do you want to be that salt of the kingdom of God? The process is through fire and refinement. And refinement is a painful process. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to destroy sin in your life. You might feel a little pain. It might be difficult. You might lose friends over it. But through that process, you become so valuable to God because a childlike presence, full of hope, faith, love, and without fear that is sold out for Jesus, operating in Jesus' name, can do anything. He can move mountains. He can raise people from the dead. He can restore what was lost. He can do anything through the power of Christ to those that have that type of faith, who are salty. And right now, Jesus is calling us to be salty. He didn't ask. He didn't beg. He didn't plead. He said, I need an army of salty, kingdom great followers of mine to ensure that all who are supposed to be saved are. My daughter was salty that day. She was. And like I said, that moment can never, I could never be more proud of her than in that moment. But I'll tell you this, because, because she was salty, it sparked something in me to make me want to be saltier. I led a small group in the church where I met Pastor Ben. And it was a bunch of young kids all 18, 19, 20 years old, and me and my wife, we ran that group. And we did things that were uncomfortable, weird, radical, and crazy. We used to go to strip malls with Girl Scout cookies and give them out for free, and all we asked in return was that they let us pray for them. 
And it sparked conversations about salvation. It sparked people coming to the church. It sparked the, the, the ones that were doing it in the small group. It sparked us to be on fire for God like no other times. Because when you are salty and in that moment, you become like that little child, like Kara, like the one Jesus put in front of them. When you become like that, you feel greatness. But it's the right kind of greatness. It's the one that will never leave you. You'll never forget that feeling. And a lot of times we have that feeling and we remember what that greatness feels like and then life happens and we forget about it and we lose that saltiness. Let's not do that. Use each other, your own stories, your own testimonies, the, the, the music that's sung, the, 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 the pastor that preaches, the, the Bible studies that you go to, the small groups that you're involved in, the conversations you have with other believers, let them encourage you to be saltier. And you in turn do that to others because the one thing that Jesus is teaching us here is he needs people with salt in their life to go save those that are decomposing spiritually. And to give this amazing flavor to the gospel to those who don't like it. That's the message that he gave his disciples and in turn that's the message he's given us today. So let's do something about it. Make Jesus more visible in your life. Look at the world through his lens, through his eyesight, and become like a child. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us today, the ability for us to meet in person, some of us, the ability and the technology for us to beam this across the, the state, the, the city, the world even. Lord, I just ask that you convict us, that you encourage us, that you fan into flames the desire to be great in the kingdom of God in each and every one of the people that are hearing this message in each and every one of the people that read your word. Lord, let us be salty. We want to be salty for you. But we will need you to walk us through that refining process it hurts, it's tough, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.